All right, so welcome everyone to Rohini and Anand's beautiful home. Where a lot of uh, love and effort and tears, I think, have gone to make this beautiful home. <laughs> and uh, I'm very, uh, I'm feeling very blessed and happy to be here with all of you this evening. Just to have, uh, just a relaxed evening. I think to set the tone for the kind of ambience we want to have in this house. An ambience that is welcoming and it is, you know, the word home, it's like, you know that it contains the word home. <laughs> it's about something very settling, something very primal, something very universal. It's like coming back home to source. And we say home is where the heart is, right? So where you can just let go and relax and just be. So. Can we set up that kind of an atmosphere here this evening? So my aim is uh, not to uh, give any very fancy teaching, just to keep it very simple. And just to share things that, like I would share with a friend perhaps, you know, things that have touched me in my life, things that have been meaningful to me. And just to have a nice interaction with uh, many of you. So some of you already know me, some of you read about me in the invitation that went out. My name is Nitya Shanti. And you can just call me Nitya. And when I was, uh, I just want to say a little bit about my journey. When I was 16 years old, my mother took me for a meditation course. And I'd never before that had any idea what meditation was. Or maybe I had a broad idea, but never had a very specific idea. And I went for this course, and for three days, all they invited us to do was to sit and observe our breath. Observe, of course, you can't observe it, but to feel the breath. Feel the breath moving in, feel the breath moving out. And I never would have believed something that simple would be that difficult. It was really difficult. I was not able to do it. And it was real, for me, it was a real stunning realization. But something as simple as that is sit down and be aware of the breath. My mind just refused to do it. And my mind wanted to think of anything else except the breath. Right. And so sometimes in meditation, we always have to go the, the reverse way. Like, for example, if I tell you, don't think of a white elephant. <laughs> so whatever you do, don't think of a white elephant. You can think of anything else. Don't think of a white elephant. Then you find you can't help, but somehow the other think of a white elephant. Right? So sometimes you have to almost go the other way and say, not think of anything in the world, but don't focus on the breath. <laughs> focus on anything except the breath. And somehow when we do that, then the mind tends to want to be a little bit more interested. What is this breath? What am I now supposed to focus on? <laughs> So anyway, that was an interesting experience for me because for the first time I realized that I'm causing my own suffering. Until then I was very convinced it's because of other people. But in those three days it became very clear to me, I am the creator of my suffering and I'm also capable of finding peace within myself, irrespective of what's happening around me. I got a glimpse of this. I couldn't say I fully realized. Definitely got a glimpse of this. So that started a journey of interest in what you can call mindfulness the art of being more present. Of course, you hear things about living the present and all of that. But I actually got a taste of it. I got a taste of how beautiful life can be when we are fully present. And I remember in those days, I would meditate in the morning for 15-20 minutes and meditate in the evening for 15-20 minutes. And the days I did that, I noticed I felt a little lighter. I felt a little calmer. And when I was seeing things, the colors were brighter. And when I was hearing, the sound would crisper and clearer. When I would taste things, I would taste more fully. 
and conversations with friends, I would get less distracted. And when my brother did something I didn't like, I wasn't as impulsive and I wasn't as reactive as I used to be. So a lot of things, I've been to a lot of these small, small things, little changes began to happen. So that began a journey of interest. And uh, being a young person, of course, I had lots of questions and lots of doubts. And what I liked about this teaching was that they never shut me down, never said, just believe it, because we're telling you to. <laughs> they always did their best to patiently answer my questions. And they answered in very nice ways through stories and through examples. And I found that very encouraging that uh, they would really tolerate my questions and tolerate my sometimes even rude questions. So uh, I happened to have a school teacher. I, I went to an interesting school actually in Delhi called, some of you may have heard of this, it's called Mirambika. It's a school where children uh, decide what they want to study. You think, isn't it interesting that we go to school and no one asks us, what do you want to study? They've decided for us. <laughs> they've told us what we should study and then they, they decide how, how you know, well we've done on that without once checking what you want to study. Normally, whenever you go, you ask the kid, what do you want to eat? What do you want to buy? What book are you interested in? What game do you want to play? But in school, which is a big chunk of their life, they're not given that choice. So they're grateful that I went to a school for many years where we were asked what do we want to study. But not, not only freedom without the responsibility. Somebody says that on the east coast of the US, we have the Statue of Liberty. But on the other coast, we should now install a statue of responsibility. <laughs> because liberty without responsibility means nothing. So in that school, while we got the liberty, we also got the responsibility to then evaluate ourselves honestly. You began with this project. You said you wanted to study the solar system. And you said you want to learn about the gravitational field of different planets. And you said you were interested in knowing about is life possible on other planets. That was your interest. Well, to what extent did you achieve that? And to what extent did you not achieve that? And why did you not achieve it? So creating self-reflection. So taking responsibility for one's own learning and also taking responsibility to reflect on it honestly and say, yeah, this went well. And this part, literally, I was lazy or I procrastinated or I didn't do it. What can we do about this? So I went to an interesting school like that. One of my teachers was my puppetry teacher. He used to teach puppetry to us. He actually made us make puppets. And then we'd create a small play around with those puppets. So he went on to leave his job as a teacher and become a Buddhist monk. And I met him about eight years later. This is the time I just learned meditation. And I met him. He'd come back as a Buddhist monk from Sri Lanka. And he was one of the few people I could talk to who understood what I was going through. So I spent a lot of time on the weekends. I'd go down in, uh, some of you may have heard of Sri Aurobindo Ashram in uh, New Delhi, opposite IIT. And I would, uh, I was living in Gurgaon at the time, so I would take a bus. Uh, there was one bus every hour, and the bus ride was about 50 minutes. So I would take that wait, and if I happened to miss it, I'd wait for one, almost like two hours to just get there, right? So very reflective time, I'd just be standing, and of course I would get bored. But then I'd remember, oh, meditation, so let me watch my breath, or let me be in the present, right? So even those two hours, even the process of going to meet him was a very reflective time. And then I'd go and spend time with him, and I'd have these beautiful conversations, and I'd ask a lot of questions. What I loved about him was he had a great sense of humor. So he would laugh a lot, and he'd tell me a lot of stories, and he had a very rich life experience. So being with him, whenever I was with him, I felt like the world felt like a lighter place. The world doesn't seem so heavy and oppressive anymore. Everything seemed workable. Everything seemed easy. And uh, being in that company, I began to get a taste. I, I later described it as my life 
took a turn in the direction of truth. Until then it was in the direction of what most young people are. My idea of happiness was earn lots of money and be surrounded by beautiful women and get a lot of uh, praise and acclaim from others. This was my idea of happiness. And my, one of my friends, I thought had done it. He'd gone and become a fashion designer. So he was making lots of money and he was always surrounded by beautiful women. And he was getting famous. And that's what I wanted to do. I want to be a fashion designer. So you see the kind of company we keep determines the kind of goals we create for ourselves. Because we think, oh, that's the way to live life. So very fortunate that I got exposed to a different way of looking at life. And in a way, went from being fashion designer to compassion designer or <laughs> Passion designer, you know, what are we really interested in? What's our calling? So that's how the journey began. And uh, I remember one time asking him, this teacher of mine, I said, My friends are doing tuition classes for IIT. Or my friends are watching a movie somewhere. Or they're in a party somewhere. And I'm sitting with people like you. <laughs> Am I doing the right thing? <laughs> As a young person, 17, about 16, 17 years old. So he smiled and he kind of laughed and he said, yeah, that's, it looks like you're doing a very bad thing. <laughs> They're doing the smart thing. <laughs> but let me tell you, you will have a high quality of life. And I think it took me years to understand what that meant. What does it mean to have a high quality of life? High quality of life is not just the places you are living in or the job you're doing or the people you're surrounded by. High quality of life basically is the quality of our consciousness. You can be sitting in this beautiful home quite calm, quite pleasant, no real threat to your life. And inwardly, you could be burning because of something that happened today. Or something you're hoping will happen in your life that you're feeling hasn't happened yet. Right. So it's not the environment, it's your own mind. So our mind oppresses us. And the Buddha once said that your mind, your own mind, is your greatest enemy. And your own mind is your greatest friend. So our own mind can hurt us more than any enemy will ever hurt us. No enemy can be with us 24-7, nagging us. No enemy, no matter how they try, they can't do it. And no friend can be there 24-7 helping us, even if they want to. But our mind is there. So I became a student of the mind, in a sense. What is the mind? How does it work? What are the principles? And of course, we learn all kinds of theories, all kinds of books. But at some point, you have to go beyond the theory. You have to step beyond, what, beyond words and get into the experience of it. So little by little, as I began to get a taste of this experience. Have you heard of a philosopher called Jiddu Krishnamurti? Jay Krishnamurti? So, I used to also teach in Bangalore. In fact, he has a school outside of Bangalore, called the Valley School. So, Jiddu Krishnamurti was, my grandfather was a disciple of Jiddu Krishnamurti, and he would go and spend time with him. He had often had conversations with Jiddu Krishnamurti. And so when I told my grandfather that I'm interested in meditation, because Krishnamurti was always against organized systems of anything, including meditation. He felt that it kind of kills the mind. So my grandfather said, forget about meditation. Read this book. And he gave me, read this place up here if you want. If you can manage to squeeze it, be more comfortable. Come. Come there. There's a ramp. You've got to walk the ramp. <laughs> Come. So Jiddu Krishnamurti, uh, I read this book by J. Krishnamurti. And in the beginning, this was before I learned meditation or before I did a little bit more meditation. And in this book, I felt that Krishnamurti is tearing everyone down. He is finding fault with everything. He is finding fault with religion, he is finding fault with tradition, 
he's finding fault with our own uh, thing we've done in our Indian, Indian tradition. I said, what is he? He's tearing everything down, but doesn't seem to be offering anything. What's he doing? So I felt that he's just an old man who doesn't have, he's just a disgruntled old man. That's my first impression when I read that book. So I put that book away and I went to meditate. Went for this 10-day meditation course. Some of you may have heard of it, Vipassana meditation. Uh, which I often say were the 10 hardest days of my life. <laughs> 10 hardest, honestly, the hardest days of my life. Why? Because I was just stuck with myself. There was no distraction. Normally I had my music going, I had my books, I had my friends, I had something or the other to distract myself. I remember telling the teacher before, I said, why do we, why do you meditate? I was kind of nagging him. Even though I had begun meditating myself, I was still teasing him, why, why should we meditate? So, uh, he said, we meditate to be happy. I said, I'm already happy. He said, you think you're happy. <laughs> I didn't like his answer. But when I went for that longer 10-day course, I realized he's very true, very, very true what he said. I could not handle just being with myself. It was torture being with myself. My own mind was just, it was terrible. The kind of thoughts that were coming up, I was comparing myself, I was feeling not good enough, I was feeling that I'm just worthless, I've not done anything useful in my life, nothing to show for my life. Already at a young age, very strong thoughts coming up like this. And so even though it was a very difficult 10 days, sometimes it's from that manthan, it's from that churning, that you get glimpses of things that otherwise you would never get a glimpse from. So the glimpse I got was, a few times, what I call happiness for no reason. Normally it's happiness for a reason. Something has to happen for us to be happy. You know, like for example, when children laugh, then other children also start laughing. Even little grown-ups start laughing. But when grown-ups laugh, the first question is, hey, why are you laughing? <laughs> and then if by mistake you say there's no reason, then people will say, what? <laughs> You're laughing without a reason, that's really dangerous. What's wrong with you? So we always have to have a reason that's like, it's not, we're not allowed to laugh without a reason. We're not allowed to celebrate without a reason. We have to have a reason for something, right? Otherwise something's wrong with you. So for the first time, or I would say, you know, it just came that happiness for no reason. Which means there was a kind of stepping back and the body was allowed to be the body and the senses were allowed to be the senses. Eye sense door, ear sense door, smell, taste, touch. The senses could operate, the body could just be. Even thoughts, I was not meddling with thoughts. You kind of take a step back behind thoughts. It's called metacognition. You step behind thoughts and let thoughts think themselves. I don't think any of us here takes digestion personally. It's an impersonal process. You eat something, the right acids, the right juices uh, come out. Mark Twain says, I, don't, I never bother about what I eat. I eat it, let it fight it out over there. <laughs> we don't take digestion personally, you know, we just let it figure it out. We want to go and eat it, we don't worry about what digestive juice will go in. Digestion is an impersonal process. But many of us take thinking personally. But just as digestion is a process of the stomach, thinking is a process of the brain. Right? So when we begin to meditate, we start having metacognition, we start realizing, oh wow, thoughts are just coming. Thoughts are coming and they're not really my thoughts. They're influenced by other sensory experiences. Every thought, trace it back. Some kind of sensory experience. Someone said something, got something going, and then they were turning around. One thing leads to the other. So this glimpse of happiness for no reason, things are just happening by themselves. So after doing this 10-day uh, course, a few days uh, after that, maybe a few weeks after that, I picked up that same book again, Jitukrishnamurti. And when I read it, I had tears in my eyes. I said, oh my goodness, this man really understands. This man really gets it. He's cutting through all the nonsense we believe. He's cutting through all the layers we've put on top of something so simple. 
right? So a process, a natural process began of what the words I like to use are unbinding or unburdening or unraveling. It's not so much, so much that we're learning new things, it's not so much that we're adding new things. It's more that we're letting go of the extra stuff. The extra layers we put on of belief about I'm like this and the world is like this and what I have to do is what I should do. All that, we have to just unravel, unravel, unravel. And a kind of intuitive intelligence began to take shape. Something I could just trust. I would just know. I would just trust. I would just know what needs to be done in any situation. And instead of thinking too much about it, you know, we often say, oh, let me think about it. When making decisions, let me think about it. But actually, I may, I may still use those words, but actually the process I've realized is the opposite of that. I will not think about it. <laughs> when there's a decision to be made, I will purposely not think about it. And in that not thinking about it, the intuitive clarity comes. We can learn less than the three levels in our life. One is the physical level. Physical level is actual life experiences. Right. Second is the emotional level. Even before something happens, you just emotionally feel, if I walk down that path, I'm probably going to get in trouble. Better not go down that road. And maybe that one seems better. You have, we have what's called an emotional guidance system. And there's something even before that, it's an intuitive level. This is something you can't really describe in words. So three levels in which we learn are lessons. If you're not very smart, we have to learn them at a physical level. This is where life is very heavy. So you have to go through very painful relationships, major financial setbacks, major health problems. And literally everything is like a turtle space. Super slow, super hard. And even there's no guarantee, even then we learn the lessons. Even then we start fault finding. And we think it's because of somebody else. I came across this nice uh, uh, picture on Facebook which said, we pray to God to change our situation. Not knowing. The situation was given. So change us. <laughs> so we're praying the situation changes, not knowing that the whole design of the situation is so that you finally change your thinking process. Because you never got the whisper, you never got the words, and now you need that hard slap in your face. Right. Try that? Let's see. I wonder if it's too far away. Totally too far away. Make it higher. Maybe you can make it higher. See if it see if you can actually put it up here. So three levels, we can learn our lessons, we can learn it physically, we can learn it emotionally, we can learn it intuitively. And this corresponds to, this corresponds to the three levels of our mind. So if you don't mind, say a few things with me, helps us remember and go deeper. So please say with me, conscious mind, conscious mind. thinks, subconscious mind, subconscious mind. Feels. feels, superconscious mind, superconscious just knows. The three levels of mind. The conscious mind, this is the, at one level I am addressing your conscious mind right now. But not really. But not really. Because conscious mind is a very poor way to make changes. Because chances are, right after I finish, I ask you what did I say for the last hour or two hours, whatever time I had. And chances are you only remember one or two minutes of what I said. You will struggle to say more than that. Conscious mind is a very poor way of actually creating transformation. So conscious mind thinks. Subconscious mind feels. I meet you 10 years from now, you may not remember what I said today. But you will remember how it felt to be here this evening. Whether it felt 
calm, whether it felt peaceful, whether it felt joyful, whether you laughed a lot, or whether you felt totally disconnected, you will remember how it felt. We tend to remember how we feel. We don't remember so much how what people say. And the superconscious mind just knows. There's a part of our being that simply knows. A good analogy is of a mirror. You walk in front of a mirror, you see your reflection. Somebody else comes, their reflection. You move the mirror around, it shows you the room. But you know what? Nothing sticks. The mirror is simply reflecting. So there's a part of us that simply reflects what's happening without getting entangled in what is happening. And it is wonderful that we have access to that. With meditation and practices similar to meditation, we can start to access that part of us, which is mirror-like quality. It's a mirror-like quality where situations can come and go, experiences can come and go, without leaving residue. How do they not leave residue? Because there is complete attention. Whenever we have a complete experience, and it doesn't matter if it's pleasant or unpleasant, whenever we have a complete experience, it leaves no residue. And when there's no residue, then in our terminology, then there is no karma. Because karma is always some kind of a residue. Either a heavy residue, or a mixed residue, or a light residue. It's some kind of a residue. There's a sense of I'm doing it. But when there is complete attention, there's no sense of I'm doing it, just something is happening. And when something is happening, there is no residue. And when there is no residue, there is nothing else to be processed. It's a complete experience. So three levels in which we can learn our lessons, intuitive, emotional, and physical. And of course, I recommend emotional, I recommend intuitive. But we can't do that just by listening to it. We have to develop that capacity within ourselves. A nice story from the Buddha's time, uh, the Buddha's, some of you may know this, the Buddha's son, Rahula, also became a monk. And uh, Rahula was a very devoted monk, very, very keen to follow in his father's footsteps. So once the Buddha asked him, so Rahula, do you see this bowl I have? He said, yes. Do you look, look inside the bowl, what do you see? He said, no, the bowl is empty. He says, Rahula, someone who is not heedful, who is not mindful, who is not conscious of themselves, is empty like this bowl. Then the Buddha put some water inside of it and he swirled the water. And then he overturned the water, all the water flowed out. This Rahula, someone who is not heedful, who is not mindful, who is not conscious of themselves, who has no regard for the truth, has emptied themselves, has spilled out whatever little goodness they have, like the emptiness of this bowl. And like this, the Buddha would teach him very, very simple uh, examples. And then he said, Rahula, before thinking, before speaking, and before acting, consider, is it the right thing? Is it skillful? Is it beneficial? Is it good for me and good for others? If it is, then go ahead. And if not, stop. While thinking, while speaking, while acting, consider, is it beneficial? Is it skillful? Is it good for me and good for others? And if it's not, stop. And if it is, continue. After thinking, after speaking, after acting, consider what I thought, said, or did. Was it skillful? Was it beneficial? And if it was, rejoice. And if it wasn't, then make a determination. I will be careful next time. I will be mindful next time. Now, of course, in our journey, usually it's always after. Right? <laughs> shouldn't have said, shouldn't have thought that, shouldn't have believed that, shouldn't have said that, shouldn't have done that. Right? But just to beat ourselves up is to miss the point. It's not about beating ourselves up. Like I said, thinking is happening by itself. As you meditate, you realize everything is actually happening by itself. 
whole universe is being spontaneously created. So to take it personally is actually a big misunderstanding. So it's happening by itself, but nevertheless, to check within what's happening by itself, but when you bring consciousness to it, things start clarifying. I don't know if you remember a physics experiment when you were in school. They put iron fillings, like iron dust, on a table, scatters on the table. They get a powerful magnet and they put it in the middle of that dust. Can you guess what happens? <laughs> hmm? No, it doesn't all stick actually. What do you think happens? Creates a pattern of the electromagnetic field. It creates a beautiful pattern, right? Because the north and the south pole of the, of the magnet attracts. And all the, the, of course, some of it will go and stick, but the rest of it will just create a beautiful pattern all around. So, in what was chaotic, you put an organizing principle, in this case a magnet, is an organizing principle. Uh, the beautiful thing about a magnet is every single particle is facing the same direction. That's what makes it powerful. Otherwise, even as in terms of its uh, molecular structure, it's not really different, same as any piece of iron. But in terms of its electromagnetic structure, there is a difference. So an organizing principle was put, and it organized what seemed chaotic, got organized right away. So in the same way, when we bring an organizing principle, in this case, clear consciousness, clear awareness, clear attention to our experience of life, it starts to organize. It starts to organize what seems chaotic in our life. Our thinking process, our speaking process, our living process starts to get organized. It starts to become clean, it starts to become more intuitive. So the first spiritual practice I learned was a practice of reflection. One of my teachers taught me, at the end of the day, look back on your day and check where in your day did you think, say or do something that hurt you or hurt others. Emotional guidance system. You're getting guidance from your emotions all the time. We've somehow not been taught about emotion in our schooling system. What a big tragedy. We've been taught about thinking, 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 and thinking all kinds of nonsense, most of which is already invalid by the time you're studying it. <laughs> the bulk of what we're studying in school now is already invalid. You go and look it up on Google, you find this is not even true. <laughs> no wonder kids are so dejected. And they should be, right? Uh, so, to learn that every emotion has a message, and the message is, it's giving us an indication of what we're thinking right now, what we're believing right now. One of my friends taught me a nice method recently. He said, please say this with me, 10 seconds, every minute, for two hours, think of something that is awesome about yourself. <laughs> Very interesting. So one more time. 10 seconds, every minute, for Two hours. Think of something awesome about yourself. It's something we very rarely do. We very rarely give ourselves permission to think like that. We have this very strange idea that that will build up the ego. Ego actually is separation. Ego is actually looking outside for validation. Ego is wanting the whole world to tell you that you're okay, because inwardly you feel hopeless. Right? I read this quote that people who boast are just wanting to convince themselves. <laughs> So, to become conscious of our emotional guidance system is to be aware that every single emotion is giving you an indication of what you're believing in that moment. So if you were to think about what's awesome about me for two full hours, you would find your whole vibrational field changes. You shift into a different frequency. And just like with the radio, you change the frequency, different channels starts coming. Different radio stations starts coming. Television, different channels starts coming. Internet, put a different website, totally different website turns up, totally different thing comes up. So when you change this, everything outside changes. And this is not just an acute idea, this is exactly how it works in my experience. When I change this, 
my outer reality changes. So this is very powerful because now suddenly we start seeing ourselves as a participant, not just a part of creation, as a participant in creation. So you can catch yourself after, through the part of the act of reflection, how did the day go? And then you make a determination, tomorrow I'll be mindful. I got really upset when I missed the bus. Do I have to get that upset? I missed the bus, I missed the bus. Now what is the best way? Let's assume I still miss the bus. Is there a better way of dealing with it? What could I do in that time? <coughs> Maybe I could meditate. Maybe I could read, I've got some books on my phone, I could read a book. Maybe I could message that friend who I've not been talking to for a while. In other words, instead of waiting for circumstances to line up, you take responsibility for your own experience. In every situation, to turn your mindset, turn your way of thinking. Right. One thing I realized in my practice is, please say this with me, everything, everything. is negotiable. <laughs> now what this means is that nothing is hard and fast in this world. Through the power of attention, through the power of intention, through the power of love, Everything is negotiable. And you look at it again and again, what we human beings thought was a boundary, like this is absolutely impossible. Again and again, we burst through that boundary. Human beings can't fly. When we burst through that, of course we can fly. And you cannot talk to someone in a different world, in a different country. Yes, we can, right? We have again and again, what seemed impossible, we've gone ahead and proven it's possible. What is the name of that uh, runner? Roger Barrister, was it? Who broke the four-minute mile? Was it Roger Barrister? So Roger Barrister, so they used to believe, really doctors believe that if you, would do, if you do a four minute mile, you'll have a heart attack and die. The human heart does not have a capacity to run at that speed, for that distance. But through steady practice, he went ahead and did it. And the moment he did it, that year, four or five more people did it. And next year, another 15 people did it. All they needed was what we call, please say with me, permission slip. Permission. It's a permission slip. So each one of us is giving each other permission slips. By the way, we live our life. So you can catch yourself after, you can catch yourself during. When you have mindfulness, you catch yourself during. And you become attentive. What I'm saying now, doing now. And it's wonderful. This is, you know, there is no insurance company in this world that can give you the kind of strength and security you get when you catch yourself during and especially when you catch yourself before. And the kind of peace of mind you get that yes, impulses will arise, old sanskaras will arise, difficult, challenging situations will arise in life. But I have the capacity to be mindful. What am I thinking now? What am I saying now? What am I doing now? Let me be mindful. So this is the gift that comes. The great inner stability, great inner strength comes as we start exploring our life in this particular way. Very different from the way, very different from the priorities the world tells us are important. Of becoming conscious of our own process, of our, this body-mind complex, being aware of how this functions, how this works, and getting really playful with it. I remember when I was a monk, oh, I lived with a monk for a while, I lived, uh, after doing this meditation thing, I went on to uh, do my MBA and worked in the corporate world for a while. And uh, then I said, this is not for me, I'm not enjoying this. Emotional guidance system. You see, what happens is, as you start living like this, it becomes harder and harder to ignore the truth. As you get more and more sensitive, it's like you have no choice. The Buddha actually says in one of his scriptures that someone who has grown in these teachings, who has come to a certain point in these teachings. There are four levels of awakening in the Buddhist tradition. Even the first level of awakening, one of the characteristics of someone on the first level of awakening is they are incapable of hiding something they've done. It's just not possible for them. They are incapable of keeping something they've done secret. It just cannot happen. 
So if they do something unwholesome, they'll go and confess. They'll go and, they, they may not announce it to the whole world, but they'll definitely go and confess it. They cannot hide it. In other words, truth has a momentum of its own. As you start committing yourself to truth in thoughts, words, and action, it has a momentum of its own. And it does not let you be negligent of what's going on over here. It's too painful. It's too painful. You have no choice but to honor this, but to listen to this. With a lovely quote, one of my teachers says this. Please say with me. When the voice and the vision on the inside becomes louder than the voices and opinions on the outside, you've mastered your life. So the voice and the vision on the inside. And the voice is not always a verbal voice. It can be an intuitive voice. It can be an emotional sensing. And the voice and the vision on the inside becomes louder than the voices and opinions on the outside. You've mastered your life. And so this internal guidance system gets stronger and stronger as we start living this way. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful the unfolding that happens. In the beginning, we are looking outside for validation. In my case, I was looking at my teachers, I was looking at books, I was looking at the Buddha, I was looking at all of these things. But little by little, I began to realize that no, I'm not here to be a Buddha actually. Buddha, that has been done. That experiment has been done. That's complete. I'm not here to be a Jiddu Krishnamurti. I'm here to be this. And this does not have to compare to you. You are totally free in your own life experience. You have free will to explore life the way you want. Right? So judgment starts to fall away. In the Buddhist tradition, you might have heard of the story of Angulimala. Serial killer. Killed 999 people. I don't know if you know the story why he began killing 999 people. He was a very sincere student of a teacher. He loved his teacher, his teacher loved him. So much, the other student got jealous. And said, this guy is just too much of a teacher's pet. Let's break the relationship. So they made a scheme where over the course of a week, different students came to the teacher and says, you like this student so much, but do you know he's having an affair with your wife? And of course the teacher didn't believe it. But imagine for one week, different people come and tell you that. And he began to believe it. And this was a bad, uh, scheme launched to, to bring this person to distribute. So when the study is finished, then the Indian tradition is you ask for Guru Dakshana, right? So you, you offer Guru Dakshana to your teacher. So Anguli Mala, at that time his name was different, I forget what his name was. He goes to ask the teacher, teacher, what can I give you? And he loves his teacher. And the teacher is so angry with him. He says, I want you to kill a thousand people. He says, what? <laughs> kill a thousand people? Why should I do that? He says, I don't care. That's, that's what I want. That's my Guru Dakshana. So he's such a devoted student that he thinks that's what he has to do. And so he starts doing it. But how to keep count? When you're killing so many people, how to keep count? So the scheme he comes up with, cut off the little finger and make a mala out of it. So anguli mal, imagine how ferocious, how scary, living in the forest, collecting little fingers, right? And nobody can catch him, he's tremendous, he's really, very ferocious, he's very powerful. Little by little it gets so bad, he even forgets. He just gets into this totally, this whole serial killer mindset. And nobody, everybody's afraid to go to that particular forest. Because they know that he lives there. So now they know he's come to 999, he's waiting for the thousand person. Nobody wants to go to the forest. His mother has compassion, said, let me go and tell my son, this son of mine has got on the wrong path. Let me go and convince him to stop this nonsense. So mother sets out. That morning, early morning, Buddha would wake up early in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning. And the, the, you know, beautiful way of living, the first thing he would do is, and they say it beautifully in the scriptures, he would cast his net of compassion. He would just spread out his net of compassion. Which being can I save today? 
which being can I rescue today? What an amazing way of thinking. You wake up in the morning and the first thing you think is, how can I be a channel of blessings for someone? So they say the Buddha would cast out a net of compassion and he would sense, today who am I going to be benefiting? In most cases, those people would come to him. In this case, he realized he would have to go there. Because <laughs> Angulimal has no intention of coming to him. And he realizes it has to be done today. Why? Because his mother has set out to stop him. But he's so deluded right now, he's going to even kill his mother. He doesn't care. And if he kills his mother, that has gone too far. Then this lifetime, he cannot be helped. So the Buddha sets out. And Angulimala is, sees his mother coming from a distance. He's all right, nobody else is going to be here. What to do? I have to keep my promise. But then he sees from a different direction the Buddha is coming. He said, oh, I've got this other guy. I don't have to kill her. So he goes towards the Buddha. And the Buddha is calmly walking in a direction away from him. And Angulimala is known to run so fast, even horses, so he can catch up with the horses. That's how fast he runs. So he starts running after the Buddha. But the Buddha does, they say, a miracle, where he keeps walking calmly, but Angulimala, no, no matter how fast he runs, he can't catch up with the Buddha. And they say he runs for an entire yojana, something like 18 miles. He runs for 18 miles, he can't catch up with him. Finally, he's exhausted. And he shouts and says, stop. <laughs> and the Buddha keeps walking and says, I've stopped, when will you stop? <laughs> he says, what? I thought holy people don't lie. You're walking, I've stopped. But the Buddha said, I have stopped harming other beings. When will you stop? <laughs> you see? It just hits him like a slap guy. And they start having a conversation, a profound conversation. The Buddha says, break the leaf from that tree. So he breaks it. So now put it back. He's like, I can't put it back. Yeah, anybody can break stuff. Not so easy to put it back. So little by little, right, a simple conversation like this, a transformation comes in Angulimala's mind. And the story goes that uh, Angulimala decides to become a monk. He takes refuge, becomes a monk with the Buddha. So the next day, the king comes with a large army, because the king also had it with Angulimala. He comes to take blessings with the Buddha, please bless me, I'm going to go and finish off the serial killer. <laughs> and the Buddha says, that's fine, but what if he's become a monk? <laughs> so the king says, what? what? How can I? That's not possible. But the Buddha says, well, what if he's become a monk? He says, well, then I will bow down to him. <laughs> So Buddha says, well, behold Angulimala. <laughs> the king is so afraid. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but when he's become a monk, he has to keep his promise now. So he bows down, he pays respects. Yeah. Of course, his, uh, the actions he does, it doesn't end over there because every morning these monks take their bowls and he walk to the neighboring villages. So every morning when Angulimala walks to the villages, people recognize, he killed my uncle, he killed my aunt, he killed my brother. But of course, he's a monk now, so they can't do much. But they throw stones at him. So every day he comes back bleeding. And the Buddha says, be patient, my son. Be patient. This is actually a very good thing. Just have a little patience. Don't, don't, don't get so easily taken up by the challenges of your life. The Buddha gives the example of a warrior elephant. You know, in the earlier days, elephants were used in war, war elephants. These elephants were trained in a special way that they should not react when an arrow hits them. So for a war elephant with thick hide, an arrow hitting is something like a mosquito bite. So the elephant was taught not to bother with these mosquito bites. So the Buddha said, you should be like a warrior elephant. When people say and do things that hurt you, you should not react so easily. So bear it. So he would tell him, bear it, monk. Bear it. So like this, every day he goes back, every day he comes back bleeding. Same story. He goes, goes back, comes back, the people throw and stuff at him. Come back bleeding. One day he's walking like this and he sees a woman in tremendous pain. This woman is screaming and he's wondering what's going on. And she's having, she's having a complication in her pregnancy. And this man who has killed so many people and has a big change of heart, 
he can't bear it that the woman is in such pain. So he stops right there, he goes back to the Buddha and says, Lord, there's a woman in tremendous pain. Please do something to help her. So the Buddha says, you go and do a Satya Kriya. Satya Kriya is, you make a statement of truth. This is a tradition of India, many, many people have forgotten this. Satya Kriya means, you make a statement that it is this way, I have done this in my life. And if that is true, then by the power of that truth, may this happen. It's called a Satya Kriya. So the Buddha says, go there and do a Satya Kriya. Say, that since I have been born, I have never killed a living being. <laughs> and by the power of this truth, may you have a smooth pregnancy. May you have smooth, what's it called? Delivery. <laughs> so he says, how can, what kind of, you know my history. You know how many people I've killed. How can I possibly say that? You know I've killed so many people. And the Buddha smiles and says, but since you've become a monk, since you've been born into this Brahmacharya, have you killed anyone? He says, Lord, I've not even killed a mosquito. So well then go and say it. So Ambali Ma goes there and he stands outside the house and he makes his proclamation three times. But since I have been born, I have not killed a single living being. By the power of this truth, may you deliver peacefully. And three times he says that. And she has immediately she killed birth. And till today, in Buddhist countries, when a woman is having a complicated pregnancy, or even otherwise she's pregnant, they always say the Ambali Mala Paritta. Paritta means protection. The protective chant of Ambali Mala. So the reason I tell the story is that no matter how you have judged yourself in your life, I'm pretty sure you've not killed 999 people. <laughs> no matter how mean you've been, no matter how you, you've troubled people in your life, it's never that bad. Right? And then someone like Anguli Mala to go through a tremendous transformation, then we all have that capacity. Right? So we should never underestimate our capacity to make a change. There is a story also in the Buddhist tradition of Devdath. And Devdath is a cousin of the Buddha, who in the beginning is sincere, but you see, as, as the mind gets purified, a new thing gets born, it's called spiritual ego. Spiritual ego is the most cunning kind of ego. I am purer than you. <laughs> I am wiser than you. What do you know? <laughs> what do you know? What are you going to teach me? Oh, I know all this stuff. Spiritual ego. I met a lady once in Delhi, she had, for years, she had the experience of meeting Krishna. Like literally, like I'm meeting all of you right now, she would meet Krishna, physically she would meet Krishna. Krishna would come and play with her and talk to her. And this was just a part of her life, it was normal for her to meet Krishna. She would call on Krishna, like a friend Krishna would come to her. And then for some reason, one day he stopped coming. And she was in such torment, why has he stopped? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you stopped? And so the biggest, her biggest problem in life was, Krishna doesn't come anymore. So I tried to talk to her and she asked me, but have you seen Krishna? <laughs> I said, no. Said, what do you know then? <laughs> you see, there's no way of talking to her because she's got this big spiritual ego. None of you have seen Krishna. So none of you understand my torment. None of you can help me. So you see, even our spiritual attainments beyond a point become an obstacle to us. Because then we start comparing with others. We start imagining we've come to a certain place. You've got to keep dying to every single attainment, every single accomplishment we've ever had. Always reset back to zero. Zero, 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 zero. Always. This is the way. Always reset back to zero. Nothing. Become nothing again and again and again. This path is not one of attaining more and more and more things. It's not about gathering more and more experiences. We're doing that anyway in life. Now we're doing spiritual experiences, spiritual shopping. It's about dropping. It's about dropping, 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 dropping. Letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go. So Devdath was like this and he got a spiritual ego and he uh, went against the Buddha. So he began uh, plotting with the king to assassinate the Buddha. 
and many many lots of naughtiness happen. You know, like in any good uh, movie, you have to have a good villain <laughs> to bring out the quality to the hero. Otherwise, hero hero means nothing unless you have a good villain. <laughs> Somebody asked me this joke about, uh, you know, in the earlier days, the biggest villain was Pran. Yeah. All the people here know. <laughs> So Amitabh Bachchan and Pran, they were often this pair that were put together in films. So there was a joke about this, Amitabh Bachchan and Pran go to the bus stop and the bus comes and Pran gets on the bus and goes, but Amitabh does not go. Why is that? Pran jai but Bachchan na jai. So you need, a, you need a villain like Devdath to bring out the quality of the Buddha. And how he's tormenting the Buddha in every possible way. The Buddha is so calm every single time. He's responding with such calmness every single time. One, one of the plans that was made to assassinate him, these, uh, a single assassin, very powerful assassin, is set, sent to kill the Buddha. And then on the way back, there are two assassins to kill off this guy, to, kill off the, to remove the evidence. And on the way back, there are four more to kill off these two. <laughs> and like this going back, all the way to I think 32 assassins, right? This goes back like this. Until the 32 don't even know who they're killing and why. They have no clue what happened. So this is to completely remove the evidence of what happened. So the plan is very nicely set up. And nobody knows, only the, each assassin only knows their project, that they've got to kill this person, and they're not told why. All right, so fine, they'll go. This assassin goes. And you know, in the, in the whole area, they're all waiting. They're all laying in wait, and when, when is it going to happen? So Devdath is waiting for the news, waiting for the news. And nothing happened. There's no news coming. What's going on? So it turns out the first guy went and he was so impressed by the Buddha's aura, he put down his thing and became a monk. <laughs> then the other two came to check what happened to this guy. <laughs> and they get so impressed, they also become monks. And by the end of it, all these people are going to become monks one after the other. <laughs> so it's so beautiful. You try to use fire to damage water, the fire only goes off. <laughs> you try to use fire to damage water, the fire only went off. There's no, there's no way. Right? So it's not frustrating that Devdath is trying again and again to trouble the Buddha. It's not working. It's just everything is getting trenched one after the other. So it's full of stories like this. So we have two traditions of Buddhism. We have Hinayan, which is actually the better word is Theravada, Southern Buddhism. And we have Mahayan. Yan means vehicle. Right? And there's different philosophical differences. But one very interesting difference is that in Hinayan or Theravada, we believe that Devdath actually was a very bad person. And uh, as a result of what he did, he goes to hell for a very, very long time. But of course, in Buddhism, nothing is permanent. You will come out of hell, and eventually, he also, in the future, he will also get enlightened. This is the view in Southern Buddhism. The view in Northern Buddhism is very different. They believe that Devdat is actually a Bodhisattva. Bodhisattva is a being who has devoted himself to the enlightenment of other beings. And he decides to play this game that I will trouble you in this lifetime just so people recognize just how awesome you are. <laughs> Very interesting perspective. I will trouble you in this lifetime just so people realize how amazing you are. And so in the Mahayana tradition, he does not go to hell. He gets born in one of the highest heavens to continue his bodhisattva activity. So what this means is we can tell the story any way we like. We can tell the story of our life any way we like. So one of the things I realized is religion and all of these things we've done, it's just stories. <laughs> it's full of stories. You start taking it literally, you get in big trouble. 
when you see this one big story, it's just inviting you to get more creative with your story. <coughs> so can you be a master storyteller, is the question. Can we be master storytellers? I'll give you an example. One of my first programs I did when I came back from being a monk, I was still a monk at the time, I came to Pune. And I was inspired to suddenly in the middle of the day ask everybody, do you remember that in Amrachita Katha or in the books of old, we hear about kings going in disguise into their kingdom? Have you heard of this? Mm -hmm. So kings will just dress up as an ordinary person and they'll walk into their kingdom. And the idea is to find out what's really going on. Because you see, there's only so much you can get from spies and messengers and ministers. You don't really know what's going on. So you dress up like an ordinary person, you go and explore your kingdom, and you learn amazing things. So I said, now for the next two hours, we're going to do this. I want you all to imagine that you're like a king. <laughs> In other words, you've got everything. You're totally, you're totally, but you know, you're sovereign. You're a powerful being. And I want you to walk out into the city, <coughs> pretending to be an ordinary person. But the difference is, you're just out there to see what's going on and to connect with normal people. Right? Another version of this is, have you heard the word avatar? Avatar is uh, God in human form, is avatar. And by the way, everyone is an avatar. God is grand overall design. It's an overall, it's the underlying physics, it's the underlying mathematics, it's the underlying law of the world. Right. That overall, grand overall design in human form is an avatar. So Mahavatar, what is a Mahavatar? Someone who has realized that they are an avatar is a Mahavatar. Until then you're just an avatar. You're a god in disguise, you don't know you're a god in disguise. You're thinking you're a human being. You've gotten so caught up in your little role, you forgot it's a role. You started taking it seriously. You started really believing that I'm this name, and I'm this education, and I'm this place I live, and I'm this bank account, and I'm what people tell me. No, you're not. That's just a role you're playing. God wanted some entertainment. <laughs> so God decided, let's go and do this. Let's play this little drama. Let's do this little performance. Let's play this little video game. I don't know, it's a much higher level video game that we currently have. It looks really real. It's got smell and taste and everything. So I said, now imagine you're a king, or imagine you're a Mahavatar, and you're walking out into the city. So just go walk into the city. You have no, there's no activity as such you have to do. Whatever you want to do, it's up to you. And then come back and share your experience. So people came back two hours later, and they shared life-changing stories of what happened in those two hours. They shared just going and feeling so free, talking to people without expecting anything. Normally when we talk to people, we expect something. Normally when we walk, we're trying to get somewhere. But now walking just to walk. Having a profound conversation with the shopkeeper. Just complimenting what a nice shop you have. And you think, oh, thank you, nobody notices. <laughs> and having a profound conversation. Buying an ice cream and having a little beggar boy saying, mujhe bhi chahiye. <laughs> and instead of resisting him, because you're a king, right? <laughs> offering him the ice cream. His friends come, offering all of them an ice cream, and now sitting on the sidewalk with 10 kids having ice cream. <laughs> Experiences that are always available to us, but we very rarely take. Because we are so caught up in the story of, I am not enough. I need to get somewhere, I need to do something, I need to achieve something, I need to become something. I am on a timetable, I have got to get somewhere, I have got to achieve something. But suppose you have already achieved it, suppose you are already this king, suppose you are already a Mahavatar, now what? Now you are just here to play. So something relaxes in our being. So all that happened was, I gave them a different story. And for those two hours, they took on that new story. And they had a profoundly different life experience. So please say with me, the quality of my life is the quality of the stories I tell.
and we can get creative with our story. We don't have to be locked in into one particular story. Have you heard of this uh, person who was born in a prison and then uh, born in a prison and then was a thief as a child and then flirted with all the girls <laughs> and then became a driver? <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> you know I'm talking about, right? This is Krishna, right? <laughs> but I told the story in a very bad way, right? Born in a prison, son of convicts. <laughs> and of course, what do you expect? Become the thief. And what do you expect? It's a big Casanova. And what do you expect? Become the little chauffeur, the driver. No, but this is Krishna. This is one of the most loved people in our country. But that's not the way we tell the story. You say, Bhagwan ji ne. Kya leela hai Bhagwan? God chose to be born in a prison. Oh, what a leela. What an amazing thing. Makhan Chor, he's not crying, Makhan Chor. <laughs> How beautiful he's feeling Makhan. <laughs> you see? It's a way you tell the story. How are you telling the story of your life? So suppose, you, I suppose I just offer you this, that your story is no less outstanding and awesome and brilliant than Krishna's story. But you've got to recognize it. If you don't recognize it, then it's just, then you're just an avatar. You're still, you're still God in disguise, but you don't know it yet. And then you will suffer. But if you start recognizing it through meditation and through play, what is meditation? It pierces the superficial personality. Otherwise, we caught up in conscious mind thinks, subconscious mind feels, superconscious mind just knows. You pierce through that. So please say with me: conscious mind, subconscious mind, superconscious mind, never mind. <laughs> So we're trying to get to a place of never mind. Never mind means this idea that some outcome is better than the other. Something happening is better than the other. It's a false idea. Think about it. In your life, have you not learned so much from the difficulties, from the so-called wrong, the mistakes, the so-called mistakes? Have you not learned so much more from that than when things just went smoothly? Yes or no? Yes. Think about it. Right. So when you start realizing that there were no mistakes actually, that was actually a very important part of my journey. Anguli Mal had to go through that in order to have a powerful realization. I used to teach meditation in prisons, and it's amazing, prisoners who've gone through such heavy stuff in their life, when they meditate, they really meditate. Oh my goodness, when they meditate. Because you know when you've been through that kind of suffering, and you get the slightest ray of hope, you don't fool around anymore. These people really, they juice out. They've tasted it, that this, there's something here. They just suck it up. They stop playing games. I read a quote yesterday. Please say with me. Suffering is necessary. Suffering is necessary. Until we realize. Until we realize. It is unnecessary. <laughs> so well then, you will have to suffer. You will suffer in this game of being an individuated self, a poor little body-mind. You will really suffer. Until you realize it's not necessary, it's just God playing with himself. God playing with herself. God playing with itself. Life experimenting with itself. So you pierce through, you pierce through the superficial idea of who we think we are. What everyone has told us that we are. What we've been telling ourselves for so long that we are. But guess what? The mirror, the mirror can be fixed on that bathroom wall reflecting the commode for 30 years. And one day you change home, you take the mirror out, guess what? It's reflecting them totally different. The mirror, that, that just because it reflected for 30 years doesn't mean it's stuck on the mirror, not at all. The mirror is always free. You're always free. Doesn't matter what you can believe in. Right. 
So you can be, you could have thought a certain way for the longest time that does not change for a moment who you really are. It's not the length of time you've been a certain way that determines who you are. It's the, your emotional guidance system. Let's say only once in your life you experienced joy. The rest of the time you were depressed. But when you felt joy, you expanded. You felt light, you felt free. Well, as far as I'm concerned, that's who you are. Because it's more expanded, it's more free, that's who you are. Not, not the length of time. That was just a misunderstanding. So it's not the length of time you've made a certain mistake or believed a certain way that determines who you are. It's your emotional guidance system, larger and larger, wider and wider, freer and freer. And eventually, you go beyond emotion. Because emotion is only required to get you back on track. You know the training wheels in bicycles? We have these two training wheels that prevent you from falling. The training wheels are only required until they're not required. When you get the hang of how a bicycle works, you remove the training wheels. You say, yeah, you're riding the bicycle. The training wheels aren't even touching the ground anymore. So little by little, the, the method is you keep bending it upward, 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 until you finally just take it out. In the beginning, you keep it touching the ground. And then little by little, you raise it up, 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 and you remove it. In the same way with our, with our emotions, the, the vibrational tone of our being is required only until you touch that intuitive intelligence. Once you touch that, it's not required anymore. So now, you don't even have too many emotions anymore. Everything is clean. Every experience is clean. Every interaction is clean. And it's not, what can you do for me? It's an agenda-less presence. As long as you're playing the game of what can you do for me, you're still involved in those, all the difficulties that come up in relationships and all the, what can you do for me? I met a friend of mine, she recently retired after running a big pharmaceutical business. And she said to me, Nitya, the biggest change I see in myself after retiring is that earlier, as a CEO of a company, every interaction, someone wanted something from me, and I wanted something from them. Every interaction, every meeting, every interaction, every phone call, either they wanted something from me, or I wanted something from them. Usually it was both. And if I didn't want anything from them, I just cut off, not available, sorry, <coughs> busy, not available. So the big difference I see in myself now is, I just have interaction with people without wondering what will they give me <laughs> or what will I give them. Just I feel so free now. In a corporate uh, world, every meeting has an agenda. It's supposed to be one of the good things, right? You should know what the agenda of the meeting is. If you sit down, then you're always taught, let's be clear about the agenda. But I always tell people in the corporate world, once in a while, just be brave and have an agenda-less meeting. <laughs> And just spend an hour there with no idea what you're going to talk about. You might find it's the best possible meeting. Because stuff that never gets discussed, stuff that never comes up, starts to come. Because there was never a space to talk about it earlier. But now there's a space. In New Zealand, they have a lovely question. The Maori tribe of New Zealand has a lovely question. Please say with me. What is it, what is it? you're not saying? Because, because no one is asking. Isn't that a beautiful question? Say it again. No one is asking. What an amazing question. Because there's no permission slip. Because never, no one ever said it's okay to talk about those things. There's a chief teacher in the West, motivational speaker, Jack Canfield. He runs a seven-day retreat every year. On day three or four of the retreat, he does something quite surprising. He stands up in a group of, I think it's usually 500 people. And he says, the next two hours are dedicated to sharing secrets. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh. He said, don't worry, no one will force you. 
I'll go first. And he shares a secret from his life. And then he says, has anybody else experienced something similar? In 500 people, few people raise their hand, yeah, I'll experience that. Then somebody else is brave enough to stand up, they share a secret. Has anybody else experienced this? People raise their hands. And like this it goes, person after person after person. And you see, as this starts happening, permission slip. People start realizing, oh really, it's okay to share that? Oh really, you share that? Oh my goodness, can I also share, can I also do it? Can I also do it? And one by one they start opening up. And there's laughter and there's tears. And he said at the end of those two hours, people feel profoundly free. Because they realize that what we thought was so bad about me, turns out we've all been through all kinds of... And you know, we laugh, we say, oh really, you, you, that, you've been carrying that? That's nothing. Let me tell you mine. <laughs> and the someone says, oh, that's nothing. Let me tell you mine. And it goes on like this. You realize, oh my goodness, it's all right. It's okay. No matter what happened, it's okay. It's just fine. So even what we thought was really, really horrible, terrible stuff, from a wider perspective, from the perspective of wisdom, it's just God playing with God. It has to do with the level of subtlety you've come to your own being. If you see yourself as a physical being, having a physical experience, you're going to get hard slaps from life. So four levels of uh, understanding, please stay with me. I'm a physical being, having a physical experience. Second one, I'm an energy being, in an energetic universe. Third one, I'm a light being, in a light universe. The fourth one, I'm pure consciousness. Experiencing pure consciousness. <laughs> now each of these, by the way, is valid. And each of these has its own physics. <coughs> so if you think you're a physical being having a physical experience, then you will feel all the limitations and all the tragedies of a physical being having a physical experience. If you realize you're an emotional being having an emotional experience, or an energetic being, emotion basically energy and flow. Emotion, energy and motion is emotion. Right? So instead of focusing so much on the body, you focus on the feeling. Like we said, you can learn less in the different, different points. You can learn lessons at a physical level, at an emotional level, at an intuitive level. What lessons are you learning by lesson that? So you start realizing, so you start seeing yourself basically, and as you meditate, literally the body starts feeling transparent. Starts feeling like it's just a flow of energy all the time, just pulsating energy all the time. It's an experience, not a concept, it's an experience. You experience this. You experience everything is dissolving, arising and passing, arising and passing. It's beautiful. And then even the painful experiences is just a little denser energy. But within that you see vibration, tingling, moving up and down. It's beautiful. So now everything that happens starts melting away. Earlier, someone would say something, you'd carry it for years. In Hindi movies they say, Saad Janmo Tak Nahi Bhoolunga. So what is the purpose of this? And you don't have to say anything. If someone did something one time, you remember it for seven lifetimes. This is your own stupidity. Right? But the wise person moves on. Right? So now something happens, it only lingers for a few minutes. Light being, what is light? They say every particle in the universe, physicists say this, is photoreceptive and phototransmitted. Every particle. So matter is actually frozen light. Everything is light. Everything is light. If everything is light, then everything is phototransmitted, photoreceptive. So now, when something happens, blessing goes out. When something happens, blessing goes out. May you be well, may you be happy, may you be well, may you be happy. It's a different level of consciousness. My teacher, this monk I talked about, he once asked me this question. He says, right now, if robbers broke into our room and threatened to kill us, what will you do? In 
interesting question. Right now, if robbers broke into this room and threatened to kill us, what would you do? I said, I don't know. I'll probably struggle. I'll try to just make them stop. He said, yes, and that would be the right response. But for me, I would not resist, and that would be the right response. So there's no one fixed response. Every response, in, at his level of consciousness, allowing them to do what they need to do is also a beautiful response. Have you heard of a teacher called Raman Maharishi? Bhagwan Raman Maharishi, one of the greatest saints of our country. So Bhagwan Raman Maharishi was sitting, and he spent his whole life near the mountain Arunachala. True story. He was sitting on um, a rock, and he had this habit of keeping quiet and very still, and sometimes gazing into the distance. So there, there was an orchard of mangoes, and some thieves came and began stealing mangoes. And as they were leaving, they realized that this man has seen them steal. So the leader tells the other guy, go and kill him. He said, no, no, killing is too much. Why should we kill a person who just stolen mangoes? He said, all right, if you don't kill him, go and blind him. Go and blind him. So then he can't tell anybody what happened. He cannot recognize our faces after that. So his assistant goes to blind him. And he sees Raman Maharshi sitting so calmly, gazing into the distance. He comes back and says, he's already blind. <laughs> <laughs> he's already blind. And they leave him alone and they go. This is an amazing story. So this man is not trying to preserve his life. People, and he can hear that conversation. Go blind him. He's not running away from there. This is the depth of surrender. Right? This is the depth of understanding. This is just God playing with God. So now the thief comes to kill him, and he's not even flinching, he's not even moving his eyes, he's just coming to gaze into the distance. He looks like a blind man. So depending on the subtlety of your understanding of yourself, you think you're a physical being in a physical universe, you're right. It's a certain density, you've got to live a certain way. Energy being in an energy universe, yes, you're right, and healing will happen faster for you, manifestation will happen faster for you. A light being in a life universe, that's also right. You'll start playing with this universe in ways you can't even imagine right now. Everything gets so playful, everything gets so fun and fluid. And then consciousness, experiencing consciousness, now this is just, everything is just as one. I'm actually talking to myself right now. <laughs> it's so funny, why am I talking to myself right now? <laughs> I don't need to talk to myself right now. But that just happens to be what's coming up right now. Right. And you're entertaining me right now. You're tolerating me right now. Right. As though I'm trying to teach you something. Although you already know this, you don't need to be told this. So you see, suddenly everything gets very, everything really shifts. It's just me meeting myself in all my different guises. Yatha drishti, tatha shrishti. So the quality of our story is the quality of our life experience. What's the story we are telling? So while we can get a glimpse of this as I'm talking, we need to stabilize, stabilize that aspect of our life. What is our level of consciousness? Two ways of knowing it. When unwanted things happen, when unwanted things happen, what is the place you tend to go to? This is one. And the other one is, when there's a threat to life, what level of consciousness do you tend to go to? So do you tend to imagine yourself as a physical being, energetic being, light being, consciousness being? So when unwanted things happen, that's a, that's a simple challenge. Throughout the day, when unwanted things happen, what's your response? Is your response focusing on what's wrong? Focusing on what's possible? Blessing that person or feeling that person is just you in disguise or God in disguise. And that doesn't mean you don't do anything about it, you'll still do whatever you have to do, but you'll do it from a place of like there's no karma happening. This is just what needs to happen right now, it'll just come through you. 
It could even mean there was my, my friend went to an ashram and the teacher there noticed it's one o'clock and food is not being made. In the ashram, strict food has to be put down at one o'clock. He goes to the kitchen and he shouts at all the people there. Khana ni bana And he shouts at them. And they all got activated. They start making the food. <laughs> and then he walked out of there smiling. <laughs> you see, at that moment, anger was needed to activate people. They were getting lazy. So anger was a tool that God used to energize himself. You see, it's not personal. Next minute, he can be totally friendly with those people. It's just what's needed in that particular moment. So now the full range of emotions is available to us. More as a play than as guidance anymore. Well, you can't, once you come to the intuitive space, emotion is something to play with. It's like you listen to different kinds of music, you can now play with different tones of emotion. You can tune into different levels of consciousness. You can tune in different spectrum, different levels, different layers. You can understand what it's like for someone who's really suffering the loss of a child. You can understand it without getting sucked into it. And then you can support them. If you get sucked into it, you're as bad as them. You're also sitting and crying and howling with them. Well, what, what, what benefit is that? They're drowning all out of drown with you. Come to drown together. No, that doesn't help. You can hold the space for them. You can be there, you can feel what they're feeling, and yet not get sucked into it. And then in your physical life also, the manifestation starts to happen. The clarity starts to come. Alright, so I think I've launched lots of rockets here. <laughs> Different perspectives. Take a few minutes of just being quiet. Let things settle. See what stays with you.
a nice deep breath. And slowly open your eyes if they're closed. And just play this game of looking around this room slowly and first seeing this home as a physical home. Right? So this is a physical home made of bricks and stone and wood and various other materials. This is a physical space with physical people sitting here. So first see this as a solid home, physical home. And appreciate the beauty of this physical home with physical things <coughs> gathered together from nature, earth, water, fire, air, and space. Notice something that you haven't noticed before in this room. Alright, so now let's shift and instead of seeing it as a physical room, physical house, see it as energy. So just see it as energy appearing to be solid. So it's just energy, everything is energy. Everything is energy. People here are also energy. Correctly they are, you know, it's photons coming into your eyes. It appears to be people, but it's just energy reflecting on the back of your eye. And sound, of course, you know, is energy. It's just pulsations contraction and pulsation of airwaves. It's all energy. So play with that idea. It's all energy. Everything I'm feeling is also energy. So now suddenly, we're looking not so much at a physical space. We're looking at the energy of the space. What does it feel like to be here? Not just what is, what is here, what does it feel like to be here? I have a friend who uh, senses energy in homes. And you know, we've heard acupuncture for the body. She does acupuncture for homes. So she takes, I think it's cedar, cedar wood, and she walks outside the home. And she senses uh, where it is. And she will go and, like maybe in the lawn behind, the path, the grass behind, she'll go and push a little twig of cedar with the intention that that particular energy line in the house gets cleaned because she's sensing something is blocked over there. She walks around the house doing this and I experience her do it. Now I don't know if it's a placebo effect or what but when I entered the house, the house really felt different. The energy of the house felt different. So she does acupressure, acupuncture <laughs> for places. How unique is that? How amazing is that? But you don't have to just do it that way. There are so many ways you can do it. You can do it through the power of your intention. So as facilitators, people like me who do this kind of work, we do something called clearing the space. So when you go to a new place, you make an intention that I'm clearing the space of all previous impressions. This is a fresh space, I'm pressing reset. So no matter what's happened here, so for example, you go to a prison to teach meditation. Now in that prison, who knows what all has gone on. 
But inwardly you say, I'm resetting the space. So now, please say with me, right here, right here. is holy ground. Right here, right here. I shall build my sanctuary. I shall build my sanctuary. What a lovely affirmation. Right? So right here is holy ground. Right here I shall build my sanctuary. So by saying that, you have for you, this will become a holy space. What for a Hindu is a holy space, for an Islamic person is just an ordinary space. <laughs> what for an Islamic person is very holy, for a Buddhist person is an ordinary space. It's all, it's all, on, all on our mind. What is holy, what is not holy. We create this. So right here is holy ground. In some ways, it is true that prisons are the most holy place. Biggest transformation is possible. Biggest suffering, biggest transformation. It's possible. It may not always be taken, but it's possible. So, now see this whole, whole room as light. And I know I'm, make, I'm challenging you, but just play with me, alright? So it's all light. But actually it is light. If you're seeing it, it's light. Otherwise you can't see it. It's all light. It's all photons. It's all light. There's actually nothing physical solid over here. It's all light. And even what you feel to be solid, in terms of physics, that's also light. Matter is frozen light. Everything is light. So just for a moment, play with the idea that this body is light and this room is light. It's all just light, lines of light, interweaving, interpenetrating. And since it's all light anyway, why not add to this light your light? So in other words, add to this space your unique, your unique signature. We all carry a certain signature. So give it this blessing. That signature could be fun, it could be joy, it could be discipline, it could be care, it could be confidence. We'll go and give it that signature. And let that ripple out into this entire space. The more subtle you work, the longer the results. The more superficial you work, this the, like if I draw a line on sand, I would draw a line on, it doesn't last for very long. The subtlest teachings last for the longest time. In the Taoism, they say, the master gives the teachings and forgets it. The master gives the teaching and forgets it, that is why it lasts forever. So now let's play the next one, consciousness. In other words, you cannot experience this room, this house, even this body, unless you're conscious. If you're not conscious, you can't experience it. There has to be something conscious, something noticing, something is conscious. That consciousness began at birth. It's even there when you sleep. Otherwise, how will you say I had a good sleep or a bad sleep? I slept well or badly. It's even there when you sleep. It's always there. That's the most fundamental. So instead of saying, I am in this home, just come back to I am, which is consciousness. In other words, you're noticing that noticing is going on.
So just trying to make more real for you what I was talking about. Right. And you may or may not have had a very clear experience of any of these things, that's fine. You're just opening up new rooms in this big castle of your own mind, life experience. Right? We don't have to live so tightly in one particular room. You can get more creative with this, you can get more playful with this. You can access, like in software terminology we say that, you know, everything is a code. And no matter how, what the code, there's always some bugs in the code. So then you have a software patch, you have an update. Every now and again you have a software update. So all that we're trying to do in this session is update our software a little bit. If that new patch I'm offering you makes sense, then apply it. If not, drop it, doesn't matter. It's just something that's worked for me. Right. So keep upgrading the software, keep upgrading the software until you realize it's all software. <laughs> until you realize it's not personal. Let me summarize Buddha's teaching in just three beautiful short phrases. Please say it with me. Everything changes. That can hurt. Don't take it personally. <laughs> so in the Buddhist language it is anicca, dukkha, anatta. Anicca means anitya we say in Sanskrit. Anitya. Nitya means my name is Nitya. Unchanging, right? Anitya. Changing. Everything changes. That can hurt. Why? Because we tend to hold on to stuff. That's why it hurts. We tend to attach. Everything changes. That can hurt. Anatta. Don't take it personally. It's not personal. It's an impersonal process. So when you realize it's an impersonal process, there's a beautiful Sufi story. The Sufi master is crying and saying, God, I'm tired. I don't know how to pray to you. I realize my whole life I don't know how to pray to you. Because what can I say to you that you don't know? <laughs> what am I trying to tell you? I mean, you know, you know, every, you know everything. What can I give you? What can I offer you that's not yours? If I offer you flowers, you only make it. It's like this, this silly thing. I've taken your flower and given it back to you. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I just feel totally lost. Tell me, what, what can I do for you? So that day, God decides to reply. And God says, my son, you're right. <laughs> I've only made everything. I've only created everything. So actually there's nothing that you can really give me. What are you going to give me? But you know what? There is something that I would like for me. So he says, what's that? God says, where I am, it's perfectly quiet. There are no preferences. There are no likes or dislikes. Everything is available. Everything is there. There's no shortage. There's no lack. There's no anxiety of any kind. Where I am, it just is. Everything just is. So if you don't mind, can I have some of your anxiety? <laughs> can I have some of your fear? Can I have some of your uncertainty? Can I have some of your restlessness? And the Sufi says, I've got lots of that. <laughs> I'm very happy to give it to you. And so in this story, the way it goes is, God gets a little bored of being so peaceful all the time. <laughs> Right? God gets tired of being so blissed out all the time and God wants to change. It's very interesting, I notice in myself that after lots of meditation and talking about all of these things, I need to go and watch an action movie. 
So you can't talk about peaceful things all the time. Okay, enough now. <laughs> Let's go and watch a night vision vision movie. Right? It's just required to recalibrate to balance the markets. It's fine. Yeah? You can't. There's only so much you can do the same thing. So after eating lots of sattvic foods, let's go and eat some street food. So if you have that, uh, that, uh, that desire, then let's just assume God also has a desire like that. So now the Sufi says, all right, fantastic. So from now on, when I have anxiety, when I have fear, when I have restlessness, God wants to experience this. So that is amazing. So now you don't resist it anymore. When you don't resist it anymore, you don't suffer anymore. Suffering comes from resistance. Suffering is not what's happening in your life. Suffering is from resisting what's happening in your life. What's happening is this what's happening. One of my teachers has a habit, very curious habit, of telling jokes and funerals. <laughs> the first time he was going to do it, he told the funeral director, I'm about to tell a joke. He said, no, don't, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't tell a joke. Don't do that. This is a very serious occasion. He said, no, I think I really should tell a joke. <laughs> So in the middle of his talk, he's, I'm going to tell you a joke. And the funeral director at the back is saying, don't do it. <laughs> don't even go there. <laughs> and he goes ahead and tells the joke. And everyone laughs so much. And as they're going out, they shake his hand and say, you know, that person who died, they would have loved it. They would have loved that you told that joke. Because they used to laugh so much in their life. Let me ask you, when you die, do you want us all to sit here in white clothes and sit all real sad? <laughs> is that really what you want? Or would you like us to sit and talk about the amazing time we had with you? and the amazing memories and the do you want us to look at the whole book of your life and just focus on the last page of how you died and what cancer happened and what accident happened and who knows what happened is that the only thing you want to focus on or do you want to focus on the, the whole journey of your life what would you prefer and look at all the silliness that we do right so let me tell you the joke that my teacher told I love the joke right. so this is a joke about an old woman and an old man married and uh, they happen to die very close to each other, very similar time. So they both go to a very heavenly place together. So when they go there, there's a very beautiful light being who welcomes them. says, welcome to heaven. Welcome to your divine home. Welcome to your heavenly home. Let me show you around. So they follow him. And so in the distance, there's a beautiful mountain. And on the mountain is like a gigantic palatial house. Very similar to this one. <laughs> and so they ask, he says, this is your heavenly home. And the man immediately frowns and says, you know, that's not right. He says, why is it not right? Don't you like it? He says, yeah, but look at the size of that home. I can never afford property tax on a home like that. <laughs> he says, listen, this is heaven. There's no property tax over here. Let me show you inside. So they go inside. And all the most expensive Swedish furniture, the most amazing, best furniture you can imagine. And all the gadgets you can imagine, all the TVs and all the, you name it, electronic gadget, everywhere there's Wi-Fi, everything. Everything is perfect home, right? It's all set up. So... <laughs> So <laughs> he goes, he goes, uh, so then again the, the husband makes a face. So he says, now what happened? Don't you like it? He says, yeah, but who can afford the down payment and all of this and all this stuff in the house? He says, there's no down payment. I mean, this is your heavenly reward. Enjoy it. Come, let me take you downstairs. So we go downstairs and there is a garage downstairs. It's got natural lighting through a pipe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in that garage, there is a beautiful SUV, top of the line SUV. There's a fantastic sedan, I think it's a Tesla. And there's also this uh, amazing uh, Ferrari sports car. Right? Yeah. And these are all the three cars the husband always wanted. So the husband again makes a face. So he says, what happened? Don't you like these cars? We thought you wanted these cars. He said, yes, but you know, what's the point having a Ferrari? Everywhere there's a speed limit. He said, let me remind you, you're already dead. <laughs> there are no speed limits in heaven. You can drive at any speed you like. This is your heavenly reward. Now come across the house. Right opposite the house is a fantastic 18-hole golf course. 
designed by, what's his name, Jack? Nicholas. Jack Nicholas. Jack Nicholas has designed this heavenly golf course. And again, he makes a face, he says, yeah, but who can afford these kind of memberships to the golf course? Forget about it, I'm not done. don't you get it? You're in heaven. There is no down payment, there is no property tax, there is no speed limit. And in this golf course, no matter where you hit the ball, it goes right into the hole. <laughs> he says, okay, now I'm leaving. I think you've been introduced to everything. Enjoy your heavenly reward. And he goes away from there. So the moment he leaves, the husband turns to his wife and starts screaming at her. He starts shouting at her. He's really talking rudely to her. And his wife is saying, what's wrong with you? And she has tears in her eyes. Why are you being so mean to me? See, wife, if it wasn't for all that health food you gave me, I'd be here a long time now. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no real reason, actually, think about it, there's no real reason why we should cry when people die. And we should celebrate when people are born. When people are born, the troubles have begun, you should be crying that time. <laughs> there is not a single person who's been born who will not face some kind of troubles in their life. They'll be bullied at school. And later on, they'll be told you're too fat, you're too thin, you're too tall, you're too short. And all of this is going to go on. Their whole life, they're going to be compared, they're going to be judged, they're going to have internal insecurities. I mean, that's the beginning. Why are we so happy about it? <laughs> that's the time. If you want to cry, that's the time to cry, right? If you want to celebrate, and when they finish their journey, they say, wow, what an amazing innings. What an amazing knock. What an amazing way of, how look at how they play this game. And what can I learn from their experience? That will only happen if you have moved beyond this hypnotic trance that I'm a physical being in a physical universe. As long as you're believing that, then you're bound to cry. And nothing much can be done for you. No, this is like a child whose toy is broken. Right? They don't realize. But as you start maturing, you start realizing, no, it's just energy. No, it's just light. No, it's just consciousness. When I sleep at night, I don't get so bothered. Right? I'm very happily let go of the entire manifest world. And I go into this beautiful state of emptiness. I'm very, in fact, I wander, I look forward to it. So why would that be different? This whole life is full of microcosm and macrocosm. What you're experiencing microscopically in one day applies to your whole life. What you're experiencing in this life applies to all existence. So as you become a student of our day and you become a student of our life, we start understanding the laws of the universe. It's revealed to us intuitively, not just through books. Or through books, but you've got to reflect on it. Books by itself will just get you locked up in concepts. You've got to pierce those words and go beyond those words. You've got to taste it. When you taste it, it becomes yours. And now it's yours forever. So, like this, playing these games, uh, so let me give you just two words to summarize what I've said today. So please say with me. Focus. Focus. Play. play. One more time. Focus. Focus. Play. play. Last time. Focus. Focus. Play. play. So focus means give your attention. Give your full attention, like I said earlier, when we give our full attention to anything, there is no <laughs> suffering. Suffering comes from divided attention. This is what Maharaj, one of my teachers said, that your problem is that you want what you don't have. And you don't want what you do have. <laughs> this is your problem. So let me give you the solution. How about you don't want what you don't have. And you want what you have. And he was very happy with the solution. People were like, I don't get it. <laughs> but that's actually the solution. So God wants to experience this right now. God wants to experience giving a talk in this particular home, in this particular little page, in the library of existence, this little page, this little paragraph, God wants to experience this right now. Well, so be it. Right. So be it. in your case, God wants to experience listening to this fine speaker right now. Well, so be it. 
so be it. God wants this right now. So God wants this right now. I want this right now. I'm in bliss. But if God wants this right now and I want something else, now welcome to hell. Welcome to hell. You think you're smarter than God. You think you know better than God. You think you know better than existence. Welcome to hell. What is hell? Hating your existence. Judging your existence. Resisting your experience. Resistance is suffering. Welcoming, embracing, loving, and being one with is bliss, is freedom. So focus means give your full attention to any experience you're having, even if it's heartbreak. By the way, hearts don't break. Hearts are muscle, by the way. <laughs> hearts just contract. <laughs> you cannot have heartbreak. You only have contraction. And hearts are very good at contracting and expanding. Right? So it'll be fine. So you say, bring it on. A nice mantra. Say it with me. Bring it on. Bring it on. When you say bring it on, you become a spiritual warrior. As opposed to a spiritual warrior. Spiritual warrior wakes up in the mind of Bhagwan Ji, you are very You keep on praying, don't give, don't give. You got it backwards. You know, God wants to experience that. Well, Alright, this is what you want to experience? Bring it on. Bring it on. When you welcome it, something funny happens. You drop resistance, it starts to accelerate. Your experience accelerates from a physical experience to a vibrational experience, to a light experience, to pure consciousness. And then beyond prior to consciousness. Consciousness is the biggest illusion of all. That's the operating system. That's the machine language. You've got to go behind that. So focus and play. Play means being playful. Don't take it so seriously. Right? So whatever happens, get up, dust yourself and move on. So I give you the nice game. What is the nice game I gave you earlier? Ten seconds every... No, every minute. Hopeless. Do up. Then, this is why I keep making sure you better understood it. I don't know what's going to happen with my talk later on. <laughs> 10 seconds every minute for 2 hours. What do you do? Think about what's awesome about yourself. And I, what I like to do is sometimes hard to think so much. So I do it with my friends. So we're taking a walk together. And so the game goes that I will say something that's awesome about myself. And my friend will say, that really is awesome about you. <laughs> and then my friend will say something that's awesome about him, or in some cases her. And then I said, that really is awesome about you. And then we play this game again and again and again and again. And you know what it does? The uh, entire emotional guidance system just starts, just starts shining, just starts shining, just starts shining. Because it's really true. Because all stories we're telling anyway. Anything you're telling is a story. And guess what? You can even invent stuff. It doesn't even matter. <laughs> you can even invent stuff. Like I'm a horrible, I'm totally hopeless at cooking. And if I, you know what? I'm just the best chef. I'm getting this chef's table episode on Netflix with contacting the bugging me if you want to, to feature you. It doesn't matter. The truth is, Somewhere in some dimension, it's actually true. When you start playing this game, it doesn't matter. When you understand how Krishna operated in the Gita, he's just he's just so free. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing that can hold him down. He's just playing the game in every which way, right? It's so funny in India that is so tight about marriage and you know monogamy and all of that. People are praying to Krishna all the time, who's constantly flirting with everybody, <laughs> and they get upset when their husband flirts with someone. <laughs> But that Krishna is doing it all the time himself. He's so free. He's so amazingly free. And yet each person he's with, full focus, the person he's with is goddess in front of him. Right? Because there's 100% focus. So focus and play, focus and play, focus and play, focus and play. Give your full attention and hold it lightly. Why? Because God wants to experience this. And if you fall flat on your face, God wants to experience falling flat on the face. What's God? Grand overall design. That entire, the whole universe was created so we could have this conversation right now. I waited my whole life to have this experience. Right? I waited my whole, I waited my whole life to have this particular experience. Start thinking like that. Bring it on. Welcome it.
suddenly it stops uh, being a problem anymore. You know, instead of being in survival mode, we shift into thriving mode. It's like the gear shifts in our car. Instead of how can I just get through this life, we just filled with life. And our whole job becomes looking through the disguise. God's going to come in many, many disguises to try to check, have I fooled you yet? Have I fooled you yet? Have I fooled you yet? Devdat comes to the Buddha, have I fooled you yet? And the Buddha smiles, Devdat, I see you. <laughs> Devdat, I see you. Devdat, I see you. I'm not fooled by you. Right. And then Devdat leaves dejected, not working. <laughs> He's very smart. He's catching me every single time. So like that, fears the illusion again and again and again. And that's the beautiful fear. That's the beautiful. It's actually freedom from freedom. It's freedom from wanting freedom. Because even wanting freedom is a big game that we play. One day I just couldn't stop laughing. I was like, oh my goodness, this whole game of liberation. What a joke it is. God is trying so hard to forget. It's like, imagine you're in a movie. And this movie, uh, in the seat that you've chosen, a message keeps popping up. Hey, it's just a movie. <laughs> hey, it's a shake little bit. It's just a movie. Just a movie. You're like, stop it. I just want to enjoy the movie. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> God just wants to enjoy the movie. Why are we trying so hard to wake up from the, from the movie if God wants to enjoy the movie? When you allow God to enjoy the movie, now you're free. This is the, this is the paradox. You go in the direction, it's like, non, it's like the opposite of what we expected. So you start getting a knack for this and you start getting a sense of how paradoxical everything is. And literally everything you say is a joke. Everything I've said today is a big joke. Right. In some sense it's totally false. And it doesn't matter because it was never about the words anyway. It was about playing with consciousness. It was playing with thoughts lead to feelings, feelings lead to being, and behind being is that never mind. So the more we come to that never mind state, now it's lovely, now there's no resistance. All right, so should I uh, give you just a few minutes, just for the people next to you, the gods next to you. Have a small conversation, just chat, anything you want to say. Uh, could be something that I mentioned or could be something else. <coughs> Just with one or two people next to you, have a small conversation. So go ahead, take a few minutes. Have a chat with the people next to you. <laughs> All right, so we had a nice, uh, nice conversation. Uh, would anyone like to ask me something? Any, like somebody was asking me about permission slip, just to clarify that. So just let me, let me say a little bit more. Permission slip is basically giving yourself permission. That's basically what it means, right? So to give you an example, a uh, few years back, I was flying from Pune to Goa. And uh, just as I was entering the flight, a friend tapped me on the shoulder, late tapped me on the shoulder, remember me? Oh, we were in college together, right? So we obviously had not been in touch for many, many years. I actually couldn't even remember her name. We were not even f that close friends, but she happened to be there in college at the same time. And so I asked the, uh, the uh, staff in the plane, do you mind if you switch seats? So we began, we sat close to each other, just sharing stories, how has it been many years? And she said to me, Nitya, 
I need you to know that you had a big impact on my life. I said, really? How's that? She said, you left, he said, she said, you left your corporate job and you became a monk. And I heard about that and that inspired me so much. Not to become a monk, but in my case, my parents just wanted me to get married. And I said, no, after doing college, I said, no, I want to do my master's. And I did my master's. And then I said, I want to do my, my PhD. And I did my PhD. And every time there was pressure, I thought of you and I said, you know, you were able to do it. You could become a monk. Why can't I do my PhD? No, I did not even realize that my decision gave a permission slip to this young lady to do what she wanted to do. That's what permission slip means. So we don't even realize how the way that we are living is freeing other people up. Having the freedom to be who they are. Here's another example. I was in school. We went for a school trip to Nenital. And some of my seniors, one class above me, they were up to some mischief. I forget what it was. Maybe they were playing a game and they broke something. Who knows what it was. They were up to some mischief. There were five of them. One of them got caught and was told to come and see the teacher. The other four, I heard them talk about in the room. They said, you know, only he got caught. We didn't get caught. But we should go and own up. Why should he take the, why should, why should he face the music alone? We should also go and own up. Like, wow, they don't have to do that. But they're just being friends and they're just, they're just being upright about it. So they went and they all faced the music, they all got punished. But that gave me the permission slip. I don't have to be afraid of punishment. If I've done something, let me face the music. You see, what's there to be so afraid about? What's how bad can it get? Let me walk on the path of truth, as opposed to the path of ease. In fact, the path of truth is the path of maximum ease. So that simple little incident, they, they probably don't even remember it, but for me, that gave me a permission slip. Not to be so afraid anymore. All right? Face the music, it's all right. How bad can it get? These are examples of permission slips. So every spiritual practice, every spiritual teaching is just a permission slip to allow yourself to experience something that you've been denying yourself. You know the, the paradox of spirituality? It's like this. Please say with me. Spirituality, spirituality. is giving you a way to enter a room you're already in. <laughs> now if your mind is very complicated, then I have to give you a big map and I say, now go walk, you know, go to this uh, MG road in Bangalore and then go buy a pizza there and then go sit and talk to someone and then go there, there, there and then come back to this room. He's like, oh, really, really, really? And you go and do all of that. <laughs> and then you come to the room and you say, oh, wow, what a lovely place. <laughs> but if you're, if you're not that complicated, like with some people, you've got to send them all the way to the Himalayas and then back. <laughs> some people, you've got to send next door. But a really sharp person can get a very direct teaching and you are that. And they get it. Have you heard of a uh, teacher called, Ma, uh, called Meher Baba? Yes. Meher Baba, a famous uh, teacher, famous saint. And he had many teachers. His last teacher was Sai Baba. And in the beginning, Sai Baba kind of rejected him, ignored him, didn't give him any teachings. But one day when Sai Baba saw he was right, from a distance, Sai Baba is walking towards Meher Baba and he keeps saying these two words. Parbartigar ho, parbartigar ho, parbartigar ho. What does it mean? You are God, you are God, you are God. And he's right now, He's been through all these life experiences and it just breaks down the last whale. The last whale is penetrated. I am that. And it's done. His path is, his journey is complete. So when, you, when you're right, then something as simple as that is enough. But otherwise, you need more complicated teaching. So then, you know, build the temple and do the yatras and do it. That's all fine, no problem. Collect many multiple permission slips along the way until you get the big permission slip and say, all right, I can relax now. It's done. <laughs> 
and I can just be the way I need to be. It's all right. I don't have to be any particular way. I can focus and I can play. Focus and I can play. Right. That's what permission slip means. Any other question anybody has? A little louder? Oh, did I miss a story? What, what story was it? Oh, my story. My story continues. <laughs> How, okay, how I became a monk, a little bit about that. So, like I said, I had a school teacher who had uh, become a monk, Buddhist monk. And at that time, when I had just learned meditation, he was one of the few people I could talk to and I could ask my questions to. And as I spent time with him, it must have been about five or six months being with him. And one evening, we were meditating on the roof, and the sun was setting. And as we concluded our meditation, and we meditated despite the mosquitoes, right? Mosquitoes buzzing, and this is this, this, like this meditate, no problem, bear with it. And as we finished that, I looked to him and I said, this is amazing. Despite the mosquitoes, despite everything, I was able to touch a certain peace inside myself. And I spontaneously said, can I also be a monk? And he smiled and he said, well, if you want to. And then he also said, in Buddhism, you don't have to be a monk for life. It's actually very interesting. It's more like, it's actually closer to an education than a religion in many ways. If you look at the tenets of Buddhism, they're actually much closer to my education. Even the way the Buddha approaches it, it's really much more like educating you than uh, converting you in some sense. Anyway, so he said, yes, you can. You don't have to be a monk for life. You can be a monk for a short while. There are many people who become monks for three months or for one year. I said, really? That's cool. I'd love to do that. So that really got me excited. I said, wow, I can also do this. And so I kind of went home with the idea that, and, and this is very common in the West, by the way, that after school, high school, you take a gap year. Or between college and work, you take a gap year. Gap year is very much accepted. But somehow in our country, it's not at all accepted. It seems like, oh my goodness, how can that happen? So, but my idea was I'll take a gap year. After finishing class 12, I'll take a year and go and become a monk. This idea came to my mind. But it so happened the family was shifting from uh, Delhi to Pune, and I was really required to be help and everything. So one thing led to the other, and that was put on the back burner. Ended up joining Ferguson College in Pune. So going through college, but continued meditating, continued uh, volunteering and serving in these kinds of uh, you know retreats, meditation retreats. Uh, had a very close friend, uh, Raman uh, in Pune. He's a psychiatrist. What's beautiful about Raman was he was a, a gold medalist in Nimhans, would have gone on to have an exceedingly amazing uh, career in medicine. Gave it up right after graduating, became a meditation teacher, and one was one of the main meditation teachers in Igadpuri. So he was amazing because he just brought such clarity to every question I had. He just gave me beautiful, uh, very experiential, very beautiful answers. So spending time with him was very, very amazing. And I was thinking, okay, after college I'll become a monk. So uh, began exploring the idea. But somehow Raman felt that, you know, maybe you should study some more. Maybe don't, don't be in such a rush. I really had a strong urge to just drop it and become a monk. I said, the study was not doing much for me. But Raman really encouraged me, you know, go ahead, just try, just do a little bit more study. So applied and got into XLRI, which is an MBA institute. And so he said, okay, just go ahead and finish, do, do two more years. So I listened to him. But again, when I was in doing my MBA, my screensaver was months. <laughs> and my, you know, the, my, all my free time I'd be exploring monasteries and things I want to do. And, and my roommate was a topper of this, of the, it was very interesting. My roommate in XLRI was the class topper. And he would see me every morning I'd meditate for an hour, every evening I'd meditate for an hour. And we'd have these crazy big assignments. 
and I'm meditating and I'm surfing the internet and I'm fooling around. I said, what's wrong with you? Here's the biggest thing. What's wrong with your study? He said, okay, okay, I'll study. And I would randomly open some pages and read a few pages and I'd go back to doing my thing. And every time, I mean, it's not even a joke. Every time, the few pages I read would be the one that came. <laughs> and he's like, well, I don't know how you do it. Every time you're able to do it, you hardly study <laughs> and you're able to get through it. I only had one rule. My rule was I'm not going to cheat. Right? It was, it was quite easy and MBA is quite, quite easy to cheat. I just had one rule I'm not going to cheat. And just to make sure I didn't cheat, I would sit in the front row. Whenever there was an exam, I'd sit in the front seat. There's just not even any temptation to cheat. Right? And because I was just so clear that I would not cheat, somehow life made it very easy for me. And without too much of work, it was just, I just sailed through that MBA experience. If I, even today, my friends think of me, they remember, what a relaxed time I had during my MBA. While everybody else was struggling and suffering, <laughs> I had a relatively good time. I just did pretty much exactly what I wanted during my course. So uh, Jamshedpur is very close to Bodhgaya, and in my free time, there wasn't too much, but whenever I got a chance, I would go to Bodhgaya, I'd spend my time there, go and visit the monks over there. And we have something called Excel IM Meet, I don't know if so much of my Calcutta here. It's one of the most uh, horrible sports meetings you can have. So a lot of gali galoch happens, and all, all kinds of craziness happens. It's, uh, but that's their idea of building culture and building whatever, <laughs> building sportsman spirit. So I said, these five days, I don't want to be part of all of this messy stuff, all this fighting and you know abusing. I'm going to go and I'm going to go to my Bodh Gaya. So I went there and I really began enjoying my time there. So I wrote to Raman and said, you know, Raman, I'm really after being after this MBA thing, I'm becoming a monk. So at that time, Raman was also going through a certain change in his life. And he said, you know what, maybe I'll also join you. So I was so excited. So after my MBA, or not, it was still during my MBA, uh, on one trip, Raman and I both went together. And we went to Bodh Gaya and we figured out which is the right monastery to join. And then we went to Banaras, Varanasi. And have you heard of, uh, okay, you already do know, Jiddu Krishnamurti had a foundation, the, the KFI foundation in Rajghat in Banaras. Rajghat is the place where Kabir's uh, cradle landed. You know, Kabir was found. Kabir was, there, so we don't know who Kabir's parents are. He was found in a little cradle. There's a small temple there. That's the spot where Kabir's, what do you call it? Cradle? What do you call it? Whatever. It's floating in the water. It came there and that's where Kabir was found. So that's where Rajghat is. That's, and so we went there and as it happened, I fell sick. And I felt sick, so we had to extend our stay over there, I had fever. And in the process, Raman began talking to the people there, and they liked Raman so much. They said, Raman, we want you to become principal of the school here. <laughs> so Raman said, okay, I'm going to become principal of Rajgarh. I said, what nonsense, we came to become monks, and now you want to become principal of the school? <laughs> What's wrong with you? So I was very disappointed. I said, okay, now Raman, I think I've, I've listened to you enough. I'm not listening to you anymore. You can do whatever, whatever funny stuff you want. I'm going ahead to become a monk. But still, it wasn't yet time. It wasn't yet. So I wrote a letter to this monastery. And I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and they're not replying. And meanwhile, I don't know if you know this, but in MBA, they want every single person to apply to the companies that come. Because it, it, looks, it doesn't look good if companies come all the way, and very few people are applying. So it's like, just to, you have to do it. So they're all right, just to make you guys happy. I applied to a few companies. But I was very, uh, I would almost say, to, to an extent, disrespectful of the process. Like, I remember one interview where this guy was smoking, he said, I hope you don't mind I'm smoking. I said, no, I do mind you're smoking. <laughs> so literally, I was just not caring what people, I, just, I, didn't want, I, didn't, I didn't want to get a job. I didn't even care, right? But it got into FCL Technologies, and the letter had not come. So my friend said, you know, just take it. It doesn't matter. You can drop off. You don't have to go. And I'm waiting for the letter to come from the monastery. It hasn't come. So I ended up joining FCL Technologies, and uh, got trained in Noida. Uh, got, actually, I was in Bangalore as well. I was in Bangalore. I was in Chennai. Uh, and very interesting, uh, there was, um, there was one, uh, one assignment, which is normally only for experienced people. They needed one person from HR, which is what I did, marketing and finance. And this was only, this was a mergers and acquisition. 
And I thought of all the things that were available there, this seemed like the most interesting thing. And normally a fresher who had no, no work experience would never get that. But I just had a strong intention, I'm going to get it. And out of whatever few hundred students from different uh, IIMs and different places, I was the one who got that. So I literally, for me, I felt that my corporate karma got really condensed. And in six months, I got to experience parts of corporate life that many people experience years later on. So for example, mergers and acquisitions. And I was responsible for integrating one of the biggest of that time, software acquisitions. right? And so just as someone who's fresh out of college, talking across the table from an HR manager, 30 years experience, and literally deciding terms of what the HR policy will be now because we've acquired your organization. Crazy, right? So kind of experiences. But really burning through my corporate karma and becoming very clear that this is not for me. What am I doing? This is not for me. So one night I go to our friend, my mother's friend, Hiro Advani, lives in Bangalore. And he's, uh, he, uh, we're having dinner and he said, uh, tell me, my name is Harsh before I became Nitya. So Harsh, what is, uh, how, how's work, how's it going? I said, it's all right. I said, all right, you, you don't seem to be liking it. I said, it's fine, I'll, I'll try it for a while. I'm just, I've done my MBA, I'll give it a shot. He said, what would you rather do? Well, I'd rather be a monk. Or I'd rather be a school teacher. <laughs> so he said, why aren't you doing it? I said, well, I feel I've done my MBA, I feel I should at least give it a fair shot. I said, I, said, I want you to show you something. So after, after dinner, he played a movie. Have you seen this movie? Dead Poet Society? Robin Williams, you should see this movie. See it with your kids, perhaps, even better. Robin Williams, in this movie, is playing an English school teacher, uh, an English teacher in a school that's very tight, very stiff public school in, in the UK. And he's bringing the soul back into these students. And the message of that movie is, the price you pay for not following your heart. When I saw that movie, I was in tears. And I realized that's what I'm doing. I said, this is exactly how it goes. We keep saying later, later, later. And it never happened. The next thing you know, you're getting easy loans from your company. Next thing you, you know that your, your parents got you engaged. And next thing you know, that's it. Now the next 30, 40 years are all gone. Right? <laughs> I could see it creeping up on me. I could just see it. I see the tentacles coming around my feet. I said, no. That very evening I went to the... Those days we did not have internet on phones and everything. I went back to my office. I logged into my computer. And I wrote this super long seven, eight page mail to my parents. Telling them I really want to become a monk. In Buddhism, you cannot become a monk without your parents' permission. But I need your permission. <laughs> so there is no reply for three days. <laughs> and then my mother flies down to Bangalore. What's wrong with you? <laughs> if you don't like your job, leave it. You don't have to. You don't have to become a monk for that, right? So I left my job, and then I sat at home for three months, just living at home. But I learned in the scriptures, a lot of people, a lot of princes want to become monks, and their parents say nothing doing. And what the prince does, he lies down on the floor, and says, "All right, I'm lying down here. Please give me permission." <laughs> So the princess lies down, for three days he's lying down, they say, okay, get out of here, become a monk if you have to, right? So basically, through just passive resistance, not by active resistance, passive resistance, they got what they wanted. Raman also convinced his parents to become a meditation teacher, not by forcing them, but he would meditate and he would just send loving wishes to his parents. And his parents were industrialists and very close to this kind of stuff. Finally said, okay, what is it you like so much about this meditation? So they went and did a course of going to jail. And they finally understood, all right, son, looks like you've really found something good. And they gave him permission to go and become a meditation teacher. So that was my inspiration. I didn't try to convince my parents. I just stayed at home, meditated, sent good wishes. And after three months, they said, all right, son, if you need to do this, you need to do this. We're not happy about it, but if you need to do it, you need to do it. So that's what. Then I got my permission slip, stamped, flew to Thailand, and I lived in Thailand and Sri Lanka for the next six years. Six years? Yeah, so that was my, that's broadly my journey. Like you just told me that you are married. So that's, no, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> My wife doesn't leave us. No, we have a very unique relationship in many ways, and uh, it's really the kind of freedom that we both enjoy within our relationship. Um, so, I think we've been very honest with you, and from the very beginning, in fact, none of us wanted to get married. You know, there's a nice phrase, have you heard this? What you resist will persist. <laughs> so, Esther and I were both clear we never want to get married. Then we both met each other, yeah, even I don't want to get married, even I don't want to get married. Even I don't want to have kids, even I don't want to have kids. Even I want to keep traveling, even I want to keep traveling. I think we should get married. Because <laughs> we're both so similar, right? <laughs> so that's, that's the way it's been, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. So we, by no standards do we have a conventional marriage relationship. Very, it's very open, very clear. Anybody else want to share them? Or ask them? All right. Take a minute. We'll end with a beautiful blessing chant. We'll end with a beautiful blessing chant. Please repeat after me. Mira Mangala, Mira Mangala. Mira Mangala. Mira Mangala, Mira Mangala. Mira Mangala, Mira Mangala, Mangala. Mira Mangala, Tera mangal ho ere Sabhi ka mangal Sabhi ka mangal Sabhi ka mangal ho दसों देशाओं के सब प्राणी मंगल लाभी होंगे मंगल से भरपूर 
Right, we're done. Stretch your legs.